0: Let's pray. Gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you uh, for your word to us through Zechariah. We pray that as we look at uh, this, probably the the, the most difficult passage in Zechariah, that you help us uh, to understand it. Uh, Please help me to explain it clearly to be able to get across what Zechariah is saying. We pray that you help us to concentrate, to understand, and then to think hard about how this does apply to us. We pray that we might be people who... Um, are made wise by your word and are taught, rebuked, corrected and trained by your word that we might live lives pleasing to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, can you imagine if we got taken over by an oppressive foreign regime? If Another country came in, conquered us and ruled over us. Can you imagine how terrible it would be? I was recently rereading my grandfather's autobiography and he talks about Holland and the time that the Nazis took over when he was a young man. Um, Soldiers roamed the streets, and they could basically do whatever they wanted. The Jews, including my family, were systematically rooted out and transported to the death camps. My grandfather only just escaped by accident. He happened to be in the backyard when his family were taken. Uh, There were curfews at night. Anyone caught outside at night could be shot or could be conscripted. People couldn't go where they wanted. People couldn't do what they wanted. They were forced to work for the Nazi war effort in munitions factories and things like that. Anyone who didn't do what the Nazis said was killed or sent off to prison camps. Terrible, terrible stuff to be oppressed by a foreign regime. Freedom is something to treasure, isn't it? Freedom is something to treasure. Freedom from oppressive leadership. As William Wallace cries, Freedom! as he goes to war against the terrible English oppressors in Braveheart. It it resonates deeply within us. It's something we long for. We want to be, as Mick Jagger put it, free to do what I want any old time. Well, The Jews in Zechariah's day lived under a repressive, oppressive foreign military regime. And they longed for freedom. 500 years before, way back in, the, in the, the glory days of David and Solomon, they had power and influence. But really, since those days, things have just gone downhill. So around right about 900 B.C., Solomon's son Rehoboam starts off with a big civil war. The unity between the northern kingdom, which came to be known as Ephraim or Joseph or Israel, um, and, uh, and the southern kingdom, which was known as Judah, was, was split. The, the unity was broken. There was a civil war, and the country was split into two. And from then on, things really just went downhill. 722 BC, the northern kingdom, Ephraim, destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. Southern kingdom, 587 BC, destroyed by the Babylonian Empire. And, And even though the Jews were allowed to return to their land in 539 BC, by the time we get to the time of Zechariah, when this is written about 518 BC, they are still under foreign rule. They're under the rule of the Persian Empire. And as they themselves put it, and I've put this on your outline, this is uh, the Jews' own description of their situation a little bit later, about 50 years after. This is the way they describe how they are. They say, we are slaves today. Slaves, speaking to God, slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so that they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you've placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We're in great distress. The Jews longed for freedom. And so this oracle of Zechariah that we started looking at last week, this oracle from chapters 9 to chapter 11, you can imagine it must have come as great news to them. Do you remember some of the the promises that God has made? Do you remember some from last week from chapter 9? Uh, Have a look, for example, chapter 9, verse 8. Chapter 9, verse 8, God promised... I will defend my house against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I'm keeping watch. Well, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation. Well, verse 10, talking about this king. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. God then goes on to promise that through the blood of the covenant, the Jews will be set free to live as God's flock, sparkling, not as vampires, I understand there's there's a kind of vampire connection, uh, not sparkling as vampires, but sparkling in the promised land, verse 16, like jewels in a crown. Brilliant promises. But the thing is, when God rescues his people, that doesn't make them totally free agents doesn't make them like Mick Jagger Jagger, free to do what they want any old time when God rescues his people that makes them his people and in chapter 10 God reminds his people that they need to call on him to rely on him he says that they need to pray to him for rain why is that such a big issue a bit of background one of the problems historically for Israel was the fact that they kept calling on idols they called on idols like Baal and Asherah. And one of the main reasons they did it was to get rain for their crops. So Asherah was a goddess of fertility. Or you may remember the, the whole debate with, Baal and the, and with the prophets of Baal and Elijah. Do you remember that? It was all about the rain. God doesn't want his people to call on idols. He wants them to call on him. Our idols are false gods. And idol worship is one of the big reasons that Israel are in trouble, in the trouble that that they are in. So Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 1. Have a look with me. Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 1. Ask the Lord for rain in the springtime. It's the Lord who makes the storm clouds. He gives showers of rain to men and plants of the field to everyone. The idols speak deceit. Diviners see visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wander like sheep oppressed for a lack of a shepherd. God wants his people to call on him. But historically, they kept calling on idols. That's why they're in the situation they're in. But now God goes on to say he's going to set his people free. He is angry with the bad shepherds. Uh, the the foreign oppressive shepherds, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, those foreign rulers who oppress Israel. God is going to bring them down and he's going to raise up a ruler from Judah. Chapter 10 and verse 3. My anger burns against the shepherds and I will punish the leaders for the Lord Almighty will care for his flock, the house of Judah, and make them like a proud horse in battle. From Judah will come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg; from him the battle bow, from him every ruler. Together they'll be like mighty men trampling the muddy streets in battle. Because the Lord is with them, they will fight and overthrow the horsemen. God is setting his people free from slavery. And then he goes on to say, it's going to be, it's going to be like another Exodus. He uses all kinds of Exodus imagery, talking about Egypt and the Nile and all this sort of stuff. God is going to set his people free and bring them from, from Judah, from Israel, wherever they're scattered, he's going to bring them back to be his people again. Verse 6. I will strengthen the house of Judah and save the house of Joseph. I'll restore them because I have compassion on them. They'll be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God and I'll answer them. The Ephraimites will become like mighty men and their hearts will be glad as with wine. Their children will see it and be joyful. Their hearts will rejoice in the Lord. I'll signal for them and gather them in. Surely I'll redeem them. They'll be as numerous as before. Though I scatter them among the peoples, yet in distant lands they'll remember me. They and their children will survive and they'll return. I'll bring them back from Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I'll bring them to Gilead and Lebanon and there'll not be room enough for them. They'll pass through the sea of trouble. The surging sea will be subdued and all the depths of the Nile will dry up. You See the Exodus imagery? Assyria's pride will be brought down and Egypt's scepter will pass away. What's it saying? God will bring his people home. And there, God says, they will walk in his ways. They will obey him as king. Verse 12 I'll strengthen them in the Lord, and in his name they will walk, declares the Lord. God is setting his people free. And in this final part of this, uh, this section, it says that, that the powers that oppress them will be defeated. That these oppressive powers, they might be as strong as Lebanese cedars. They might be like oaks of Bashan, it says, but but they're going to be cut down. And they're going to, they're going to wail as they lose control of God's people. Wail like a, a shepherd losing his flock or a lion losing his, his, uh, his, his hiding place. They're going to cry as they lose control of God's people that they've been oppressing. Chapter 11 and verse 1. Open your doors, O Lebanon, so that fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O pine tree, for the cedar has fallen. The stately trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan. The dense forest has been cut down. Listen to the wail of the shepherds. Their rich pastures are destroyed. Listen to the roar of the lions. The lush thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Okay, lots and lots of images kind of piled on top of each other, but do you get the vibe of it? God is setting the Jews free. They will once again be his people in his land under his rule. God will be their king. God will be their shepherd. End of foreign oppressive rulers. God will be their king. It's good news. Good news for them. But if you think about it, it's no different to the way things were before the exile. Before the exile, Israel were in their land. God was their shepherd and ruler. They had a king. That's how it was before. But Israel rejected God as shepherd. They refused to walk in his ways. They refused to call on him and rely on him and the big risk is the big risk is that history will repeat itself. God will go to all the trouble to do what he's promised. He'll he'll, he'll bring them back from the nations and restore them and raise up a king over them but again they won't live his way. God will bring the king on the donkey into Jerusalem but The risk is the people will reject him as king. And so in the rest of chapter 11, God makes Zechariah perform two signs. Two kind of little dramatic plays or something like that. Uh, These are two signs that remind Israel of their history. Two signs that warn Israel not to repeat their history. So in the first little drama, the first sign, Zechariah has to play the role of God as the shepherd of historical Israel. A shepherd of the Israel who hated him and rejected him. Shepherd of the Israel that God rejected and sent into exile. So verse 4, look at the, uh, the, the thing that uh, Zechariah has to do. This is what the Lord my God says. Pasture the flock, mark the slaughter." their buyers slaughter them and go and punish those who sell them say praise the lord i'm rich their their own shepherds do not spare them for i'll no longer have pity on the people of the land declares the lord i'll hand everyone over to his neighbor and his king they will oppress the land and i will not rescue them from their hands there's the task pasture the flock mark for slaughter and so Zechariah gets himself in character he plays the role of god as shepherd and what he does he takes two staffs two sticks very symbolic one of them is called favor, symbolizes God's favor towards his people. And the other one is called union. It represents the unity of God's people united to each other and to him. And as shepherd, Zechariah clears away the bad leadership and he becomes shepherd of Israel representing God as shepherd of Israel. Verse 7 So I pastured the flock marked for slaughter, particularly the oppressed of the flock. Then I took two staffs and called one favor and the other union. And I pastured the flock. In one month, I got rid of the three shepherds. Okay, can you see what's happening? Zechariah is playing the role of God as shepherd, shepherd of Israel. But the thing is, Israel hate having God as shepherd. And so God rejects them. He he, he breaks the staff of favor. He no longer shows favor to Israel. Halfway through verse 8. The flock detested me, and I grew weary of them and said... I will not be your shepherd. Let the dying die and the perishing perish. Let those who are left eat one another's flesh. Then I took my staff called favor and broke it, revoking the covenant I had made. And here I think the NIV gets it wrong. I had made with all the peoples. I think it's the covenant that he would made with his peoples of uh, Israel and Judah. Revoking the covenant I'd made with the peoples. It was revoked on that day. And so the afflicted of the flock who were watching me knew it was the word of the Lord. Israel hate having God as their shepherd and so he rejects them. He no longer favours them. And then as this little play, the sign continues, Israel, they, they pay God off to get rid of him. They basically give God a redundancy package. It's like, here's your package, clear your desk, don't want to see you anymore. And so God breaks the second staff, the staff of union. Judah and Israel's union is broken. Verse 12, I told them, If you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they priced me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff called Union, breaking the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Now, historically, as I said, Uh, This this actually happened at the time of King Rehoboam, around about 900 BC, this breaking of the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And the, the process of disunion, if I can make up a word, the process of disunion continued through history until first Israel and then Judah went into exile. So do you get the meaning of this first sign then? It's like a vivid drama or picture of Israel's history. God was their shepherd. He showed them favor. He, he, he kept them united. But Israel rejected him as shepherd. And so God broke off his favor. He shattered their union. That's how they ended up in exile. Do you get the picture? That's Israel's history. Uh, how does it fit in this context then? Well, here in Zechariah, it's serving as a warning to them. God has made all these great promises. The king is coming. They'll be restored to their land. They'll once, be, once again be God's people. God's going to set them free. That's great news. But they've got to be so careful, so careful that history doesn't repeat itself. They need to make sure that they don't reject God and his king. Then the last part of the oracle. The last part of the oracle, God tells Zechariah to perform another sign, another little kind of drama. This time he has to play the role of a foolish, worthless shepherd. A shepherd that God raises up over his people when they reject him. And Zechariah has to pronounce God's curse on the worthless shepherd. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to me, Take again the equipment of of a foolish shepherd. For I'm going to raise up a shepherd over the land who will not care for the lost or seek the young or heal the injured or feed the healthy, but will eat the meat of the choice sheep tearing off their hoofs. Woe to the worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the Lord strike his arm and his right eye. May his arm be completely withered, his right eye totally blinded. Well, who is this foolish shepherd? I don't think it's any particular person in history. Uh, I think uh, probably at this time it's referring again to the the foreign rulers who are oppressing Israel, Assyria, Babylon, now Persia, soon to come Greece and Rome. Uh, It may be later on Caiaphas and the, 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 the rulers of Israel at that time. The point is, though, when you reject God as shepherd, you don't just get to roam free. No, no. You reject God as shepherd, other shepherds rule over you. Worthless shepherds. Shepherds who who God curses, but nevertheless he raises up. Israel need to be warned. They must not reject God as shepherd, or they'll end up with more oppressive rulers exploiting them. Okay, I told you it was hard work, didn't I? <laughs> That's a fair bit of it, and uh, it's not entirely simple but hopefully, hopefully it's starting to become a little bit clearer for you. So let, let me try to just one more time pull this whole oracle of chapters 9 to 11 together. So, so basically you've got good promises. Chapter 9, excellent promises. God is coming to Jerusalem to watch over his house. Then the king will come riding on the donkey into Jerusalem. The Messiah who by the blood of the covenant will save God's people and, and they'll sparkle in the promised land. Then chapter 10, more good promises. God is angry with the oppressive foreign rulers. He's setting Israel free. Good promises. But there's this warning. God sets you free. You're not free to do what you want any old time. No, no, God sets you free so you will call on him and not idols. God sets you free so that you'll walk in his ways. And so in those two vivid dramas, God warns the Jews, don't reject me like you did before. If you're my people, I'm your shepherd. You need to follow me. Well, sadly, um, human nature didn't change. After the time of Zechariah, the Jews still didn't walk in God's ways and the book of Nehemiah shows that very clearly as they just fail time and time again. And then when the promised king did come, when he rode on that donkey into Jerusalem, what happened to him? The people rejected him. Rejected him in ways very reminiscent of Zechariah chapter 11. Jesus, do you remember, was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Silver that was thrown into the temple, used to buy the potter's field. God's promised king came to be the shepherd of Israel, to conquer the ultimate forces of oppression, sin, death, the devil, to to set God's people free, give them eternal security in the ultimate promised land. But for the most part, he was rejected. The people didn't heed Zechariah's warning. Of course, some people did. There were some who accepted Jesus, some who bowed the knee to him, who became his people. Originally, it was just Jews. But later on, people from all sorts of nations People came to see that Jesus is the king that God promised. And so you know what they did? They did what Zechariah said to do. They called on God and no longer on idols. They served God as their king and trusted in his son. They stopped running life their own way. They turned to God in repentance and faith and they relied on Jesus. On your outline, I've got a description of how the Thessalonian Christians did this. You see where I am now? I'm on the right-hand side about halfway down. Here's a description of what it means to become a Christian. I think it's just reeking of Zechariah. (laughs) It says that you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Can you see how that's like what Zechariah says? You've got to turn away from idols and serve God. Well, some people did that. And the message about Jesus has been passed on from them until 2,000 years later. On the other side of the world, it's come to us. Friends, Jesus is the fulfillment of this oracle in Zechariah. He is the fulfillment of all the great promises that Zechariah has here. Through Jesus' death on the cross, he can set us free from the most oppressive enemies of all, the the oppressive enemies that are behind human oppression, the enemies of sin and death and the devil. Jesus can give us eternal, joyful freedom in the promised land, the new heaven and earth. That is a brilliant thing. It is a freedom to treasure, to be free from sin and death and mourning and pain, to be ruled forever by the Good Shepherd king jesus rather than sinful human rulers jesus is offering to set us free he's the fulfillment of the great promises of zechariah's oracle but but friends we got to listen to zechariah's warning you can't just have god as your savior you can't be free to do what you want any old time a christian is someone who has jesus as their king as their shepherd there's a, a lady in the morning congregation who was telling me the other day about a girl she knew in her old church. Uh, every now and then, this girl would come to her church just about once every you know, three or four months, something like that, just a few times a year. And uh, every time she came, she would go up to the minister after the and She'd say, is it true that we're saved by grace alone? Is it true that no matter what we've done, Jesus forgives us for our sin? Is it true that it doesn't matter what we do, our good works have nothing to do with our salvation? Is that true? The minister, of course, would say, yes, that's true. And it is true. The thing he didn't know was that this woman was living a totally non-Christian life, living with a boyfriend, sex, drugs, rock and roll, all that sort of stuff. This, this woman, she kept wanting assurance that Jesus is her saviour, But she didn't want to obey Jesus as Lord. She didn't want to live the way Jesus says. Friends, it's perfectly clear from this oracle of Zechariah and from the rest of the Bible, it's just not possible. You can't have Jesus as Saviour, but not as Lord. The English preacher C.H. Spurgeon put it beautifully. Let me quote from Spurgeon. I cannot conceive it possible for anyone truly to receive Christ as Savior and yet not to receive him as Lord. Christ Jesus did not come in order that you might continue in sin and yet escape the penalty of it. He did not come to prevent the disease being mortal, but to take the disease itself away. Many people think that when we preach salvation, we mean salvation from going to hell. We do not mean only that, but we mean a great deal more. We preach salvation from sin. We say that Christ is able to save a man, and we mean by that that he's able to save him from sin and to make him holy, to make him a new man. No person has any right to say, I am saved, while he continues in sin as he did before. How can you be saved from sin while you are living in it? A man that is drowning cannot say he is saved from the water while he's sinking in it. A man that is frostbitten cannot say with any truth that he is saved from the cold while he is stiffened in the wintry blast. No, man. Christ did not come to save you in your sins, but to save you from your sins. Of course, Spurgeon wasn't the first to say it. Jesus himself puts it like this on your outline. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Or James said it this way, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Or the Apostle Paul himself, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Friends, The message of salvation through Jesus is great news, the best news ever. Jesus is the fulfillment of these great promises of Zechariah. He does set us free from tyranny. He sets us free from oppression to live in joyful freedom forever. But friends, we've got to heed the warning of Zechariah's oracle. Jesus is not just a savior. He's a king. And so here's the point. Here's the point. If you don't want to obey Jesus, if you don't want to call on Jesus, if you don't want to worship Jesus, if you don't want to live for Jesus, if you don't want to walk in Jesus' ways, don't kid yourself. You don't want to be a Christian. You can say you're a Christian until you're blue in the face. But if you don't want to obey Jesus as your boss, you don't really want to be a Christian at all. I don't know if you know people like this. Maybe it's your friends, your relatives. They say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's no evidence that they're any different. I keep running into people like this when I do kind of baptisms and funerals and weddings and things like that. You know, some bloke who I've never seen before will come up and shake me by the hand heartily, Oh, yes, Padre, good to see you. Great message. Here's 10 bucks or whatever. But there is no evidence of any obedience to Jesus in their life. They they think they're great. They think they're fine. They think it's lovely to be in church once every wedding or baptism or funeral. But there's no change in their life. If they think they're a Christian, I'm sad to say they're kidding themselves. What about you? Do you think you're a Christian? There's an old saying, if you were put on trial for a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Can you show change in your life? Can you show a love for Jesus as your king? A desire to call on him? A desire to obey and worship him? Friends, Jesus is a great saviour, but he's also a king. And so we mustn't kid ourselves. We've got to turn away from sin. And obey him as king let's pray our father and our god we do thank and praise you for the lord jesus christ the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep we thank and praise you that he sets us free from tyranny and oppression to live sparkling like a jewel in your crown in the ultimate promised land forever we thank and praise you for this joyful freedom that is ours in christ but we pray heavenly father that you will work in us by your spirit so that we have a genuine repentance a genuine love for Jesus as our Lord. We pray for those people that we know and love who think they are Christians, and yet we can see, as best we can see, we're not the judge, obviously, but as best we can see, there's just no evidence for that. We pray, Heavenly Father, that uh, these people might again be convicted by your spirit and come to repentance so that they submit to Jesus as the Lord of their lives. Father, do please help us to commend the gospel and to live with Christ as our Lord. If we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.